My name is Rob. I am a deacon here with H2O. Um, many of you know me. Uh, some of you younger students might not. I'm actually not on staff with H2O, so I don't get as many touches with the younger students as uh, the other staff members. Um, but one of my roles and responsibilities with H2O is that I get to help lead something called H2O City. Uh, so for those of you who, yeah, hopefully you've seen t-shirts around and stuff. Those of you who don't know what that is, it's kind of our community for what you might call the older crowd here at H2O. So there's a lot of people like myself who um, are out of school, work full-time jobs. We have a lot of graduate students who come around to that uh, and some of the older undergraduate students as well. And in H2O City, we just wrapped up a discussion series that we called Disagree Agreeably. Uh, and so what we did is we said, let's take just the most controversial, difficult, confusing topics that we can think of for our modern day and age, and let's talk about them, all right? We're not going to shy away from, from things that might be a bit controversial. We're actually going to wade into that and see if we can disagree agreeably, if we can have constructive conversations as Christians, even though we may not have the same answers or beliefs on some of these things. Um, and as we did that discussion series... One of the things we, we noticed is there's just a lot of gray areas out there when it comes to Christianity. I think we tend to think that there's answers to every single thing uh, that we can kind of know exactly what God wants us to do. But as we had these discussions, we realized, like, man, that sometimes there's things where Scripture is just silent. Like, it doesn't really have anything to say on a particular topic. Or it gives principles for how to deal with things, but it, it doesn't really give guidelines for specifically how to deal with certain things. Um, or maybe it does give some specifics, but it's not clear when those actually apply and who they actually apply to. Um, so as we continue our sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians called Messy Church, um, it's appropriate that we, we kind of have a discussion about gray areas, right? Because that's, that's sometimes when relationships inside of a church can get kind of messy. A lot of denominational splits and a lot of church controversy centers around people believing different things about some of these areas where things aren't particularly clear, how, how we view them or how we think about them. Um, so what we're going to be looking at today in 1 Corinthians is Paul addressing a subject that's a little bit gray. Uh, and I think the way that he goes about that and some principles that, that he applies can, can definitely apply to us today. So Paul is going to be talking about meat sacrificed to idols. Now, obviously, we need some context around that because, I don't know about you, that's not something I particularly struggle with that much. So I don't know too many people in the church who wrestle with if they should sacrifice me to idols or not. If you do, please come talk to me. Um, I have at least four questions for you. Um, I'd like you to clear some things up. But no, so to the church in Corinth, the city that Paul was writing this letter to, um, idol worship would have been something that was really, really common at the time. Um, so many of the non-believers in Corinth would regularly participate in idol worship. Uh, in fact, the temples of the idols in that area would have been kind of like event centers for us today. So if someone wanted to have some kind of a celebration or an event, throw a birthday party or something, they would rent out these temples, they would go there, they would make a sacrifice to the idol that was there, and then they would have a feast with the meat. Um, and so idol worship was like a part of their celebrations, very integral to the culture. Another area where this came up was that um, the priests who worked at these temples, they would take the leftover meat, and a lot of times they would sell it to the merchants out in the market. 
So if you were just going you know, to the grocery store to buy some meat for your family, it's, there's a good chance that you would encounter meat that was previously sacrificed to an idol when you're just trying to you know, buy a pot roast for your, your uh, family. So there's, there's a number of different issues at play here that Paul is addressing. So the first one is idol worship, idolatry. So this is not a gray area, okay? The Bible is very clear that worshiping idols is sinful. In fact, the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments are, you should have no other gods before me, and you shouldn't make any idol or graven image and bow down and worship it. And so, you know, that's exactly what these people were doing. Um, Now, we may feel like this doesn't really apply to us today because, again, we don't worship idols in our culture, um, at least not in the same way they did at this time. But the problem at the heart of idolatry is still very much relevant to us. So the reason that these people would have worshipped these various different gods is they had a god for every sector of life. Okay, so there would be the god, the idol of wealth and prosperity, and the god of the harvest, and the god of fertility and family, and the god of love and relationship. And so you would make sacrifices to these different gods to appease them so that those areas of your life would go well. But then Christianity comes along and it says, no, there's one God. He's God of everything. That was a crazy idea to them at the time. Oh, and also, these areas that you're so concerned with, you don't have to worry about them because God's in control and he's going to take care of everything. Um, So you shouldn't make that the center of your life. So the temptation that someone who was in Corinth and participated in idol worship and then became a Christian, the temptation they would face is, oh man, like... I really want my harvest to go well this year. If I don't sacrifice to Thor or Odin or whoever, like, that's not going to work out. I don't know much about mythology. Someone can come correct me on that later. But, you know, the idea would be, if I don't prioritize this, what's going to happen? Am I going to be okay? But the message of Christianity is, yeah, it's going to be okay. God is in control. He loves you. He will take care of you, whether that looks like what you expect or not. And so that is a temptation that is very much available to us today, right? It's really easy to be like, you know what, I, I believe in God, he's, he's the one I worship and everything, but I'm still going to work really hard and get a good job and put money in my 401k so that I can live a safe and happy life and just be financially secure, right? And it becomes really easy to put your hope in that thing more than your hope is in God or to, to focus heavily in on relationship and family, and, and making that the center of your life and the most important thing over God. And so idolatry is still something we're exposed to today. Second thing that Paul is addressing would be going to these events at the idols' temples, right? Okay, so um, if there's all these parties happening, you might have coworkers or neighbors or family or friends who are renting out these temples and throwing a party, and they invite you to come and celebrate with them. But if idol worship is wrong, if we're not supposed to participate in that, then is it okay for me to go to those events? So this is the first kind of gray area. Now, one could reasonably argue, and you'll see that the Corinthians did this, that you know, if I go there, but I'm not actually worshiping the idol, I'm not doing anything wrong, right? If I just go show up and have a ham sandwich with my buddies, like, no big deal, no harm, no foul, right? Uh, so the question is, is eating meat in an idol's temple, is that automatically sinful? Is that something we need to stay away from? And then the third thing he's addressing is what about this meat that goes out and gets sold in the market, right? If we're not supposed to have anything to do with idols, we're not supposed to worship them, then maybe we should just stay away from meat altogether. Like maybe we shouldn't even uh, buy meat that was at one point sacrificed to an idol because there might be some some sin or idolatry going on there. Um, So as this applies to us today, 
um, what the question we're kind of asking ourselves is, how do we as believers decide what is morally neutral and how do we approach these morally neutral areas? So what are the places where things are or are not sinful and, and, and then how do we engage with this stuff where it can get kind of tricky? So um, just to, to give you a better picture of some of this stuff, this is far from a comprehensive list, but these are just some of the things that, that could fall into this morally neutral gray space. So alcohol, you know, having alcohol in your home. What about going out to bars or going to parties where there's alcohol? Um, consuming secular media, playing video games, watching Netflix, eating out, using social media, pursuing job promotions and raises, engaging in politics, having close friendships with members of the opposite gender, taking drugs for mental health issues. Those of you who come to H2O City might recognize some of these things because these are all the things that we talked about. Um, but l let me be clear. I'm saying these things are morally neutral. As they are presented here on this list, these are not good things, these are not bad things. They're just things. And yet, I think we all know that if you take any of these things on this list to a certain extreme or to a certain place, they can very quickly become sinful in your life. So there's gray area there, right? Where's the line? What is appropriate? What is inappropriate? Um, that's the discussion I think we're going to have today in looking at what Paul writes. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to start there. So just looking at the first three verses, Paul says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So the first principle that Paul is going to give us is this. Love is better than knowledge. So I think when we're discussing gray areas, we're, we're discussing places where scripture isn't exactly clear on what we're supposed to do, it can become very easy to put knowledge and understanding and interpretation at the forefront of that discussion. So it's like, well, I think these verses kind of apply, and I read this book where this guy said this, or I listened to a sermon, and this is what the pastor said. And that's good. Those aren't bad things. You should allow knowledge to influence your decision making, but it's not the primary thing. Paul is saying knowledge tends towards arrogance, right? It puffs up. It makes you think that once you know the rules, once you know the right way to see this, that you're fine. But Paul is saying there's a better way, that love, love for God is a better option. Let's keep reading. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords... Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? 
And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul is establishing this idea of moral neutrality, right? He says in verse 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it. We are no better off if we do. It's just food. It doesn't have a moral slant to it. And so the argument that was being presented to him is, well, if I just go to an idol's temple and I'm just having food, I'm not worshiping the idol, that's a morally neutral thing, right? It's a gray area. And Paul says, okay, well, if I follow that line of reasoning that you're presenting to me, if I buy into that, there's still an opportunity for sin there because not everybody possesses this knowledge that you claim to have. And if someone else sees you eating in an idol's temple, maybe that's going to tempt them to go back to their idolatrous ways, leading them into sin. And so then you could be sinning against your brother and your sister. So the second principle that he gives is this, that concern is better than freedom. Concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ, concern for the body of Christ is better than our individual liberty and freedom. So so Paul says right there at the end that he would rather never eat meat again, completely give up the right that he has to do what he wants as to never cause somebody else to, to fall into sin. Okay, so pretty clear up to this point, right? We don't want to engage in sin. We don't want to cause other people to sin. But what about if the lines of sinfulness are a little less clear? What if there's dispute about where that actually starts and ends? Um, If you want to flip back to Romans, it's the book right before this. We're going to go to Romans 14. This is a passage where, where Paul has a very similar commentary on some of these topics. He says this, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living." So the third principle that he's giving us here is conviction is better than legalism. So, man, we just love legalism in the church. Like, that's just the default state of our hearts, I think, most of the time. We love lists of rules. We want rights and wrongs in separate columns because it just simplifies things, right? Then we know what's right, and we can do that. We know what's wrong, and we can avoid that. And, and more than that, we have a standard against which we can judge ourselves, and we can say, how good am I doing this week? Like, what, what criteria am I meeting? How am I doing relative to everybody else? Do I get to feel good about myself because I'm, I'm keeping the rules? 
And, and when it comes to gray areas, when it comes to where, where Scripture isn't clear, we're not really sure what the rules actually are, we just tend towards legalism because it's easier. We want to take the gray and smooth it out into black and white so we're sure of what we're doing. But Paul, rather than saying, uh, this person's right, this person's wrong, here's how you should view the situation, he says, you know, what actually matters is that you follow your convictions and you do it for God's sake. That the Holy Spirit is convicting you and telling you that you should act in a certain way in a certain area. What matters is that you obey that and that you do it for God and not for yourself. And so, yeah, some people are, are going to eat meat. Some people are going to be vegetarian. No one should be a vegan. That's sinful. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I love dairy. Um, but, but he's saying it, it's sometimes it's going to be different, different for different people. Um, you know, one of the things he mentions there is some people esteem certain days other than other ones. Um, one thing in my life that I have been trying to, to do more faithfully recently is to take a Sabbath every week. Um, and so to take a day off just to rest and kind of refrain from work. So like this week, I'm not doing that today because I'm, I'm working right now. I'm, I'm doing something. Um, you know, this isn't necessarily restful for me, so I don't do this on my Sabbath. Uh, so this week, it was on Friday. I took the day off of work. I hung out with my dad. Um, I didn't do any sermon prep. I, I got dinner with people. Um, that was my Sabbath. On a normal week, it, it tends to be Saturdays because it's just the day that tends to be open for me. Um, there's going to come a week where there's something I have to do on a Saturday, and so I'll make it on Sunday instead. And so for me, I, I don't think any day is a better day to have a Sabbath than another one. Like, they're all kind of the same. What matters more is that you actually make the effort to do it than uh, anything else. Now, say that there was another Christian uh, who had a different conviction, like maybe like a Christian business owner or something, and he was like, I'm not going to have my restaurant be open on Sundays because that's the Sabbath. And we're not going to let anybody do that. Now, I could be like, hey, dude, like it's, it's all the same. As long as you're taking a Sabbath, it doesn't really matter what day happens. So you should have some people take it earlier in the week, and that way we can have delicious chicken sandwiches on Sunday, <laughs> hypothetically speaking. Um, and, and Paul's response to this is not, oh, Rob, you're, you're right. Yeah, that it doesn't matter, you can do any day. And his response isn't, oh, hypothetical Christian business owner is right, and, and Sunday is the day that you should prioritize. It's, it's no, you, you have different convictions, and that can be from God. And so what you need to prioritize is being obedient to what the Lord is calling you to. It's, it's better than legalism. It's better than saying, these are the rules, this is the standard, let's focus on that. Uh, and then keep reading here in Romans 14, in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. 
So again, Paul is saying different people are going to have kind of different faith sometimes when it comes to these gray areas. It's going to look a little different. But that doesn't mean just because you don't have a particular conviction that you are completely free in that area to do whatever you want. Um, The fourth principle that he's giving is that consideration is better than judgment. So if a brother comes to me and says, hey, you know, I don't really think you should be doing this thing. And in my mind, I don't see anything in the scriptures that condemns that. I don't feel any personal conviction from the Holy Spirit that I'm doing anything wrong. I think he's wrong in accusing me of that. Paul's saying it still might be better to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to walk in love towards you. I'm going to listen to what you're saying. I'm going to go to God. I'm going to pray about this and think about it. And I'm willing to give up my freedom again for the sake of of unity and mutual upbuilding, rather than judging that person as less intelligent than me or not as holy or, or spiritual or not as able to interpret the scriptures, to be compassionate and considerate for your brothers and sisters rather than focus on yourself. So at this point, I hope that you are thoroughly confused because Paul has just muddied everything up, right? Okay, we took the idea of gray areas, and rather than straightening anything out, he's like, yeah, well, sometimes it's sin, and sometimes it's not sin. It might be sin for you, but not for you, but maybe it would be sinful for you to not love that person by not committing this thing that isn't a sin, but could be a sin if you lead them into sin. Fair summary? All right, very confusing. So how do we actually apply this to our lives? Well, I think whenever we encounter a gray area or an area of potential conflict or disagreement, we can ask ourselves a few questions. We can apply these principles that we've looked at and maybe get a sense of how to straighten this out. So the first question would be this. Am I flirting with sin? Um, So if you want to go back to 1 Corinthians, we're going to go ahead to chapter 10, uh, verse 14. Uh, 14 through 17 or 18 we'll read. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. For we partake, we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? So he's using communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. He's using this as an example and saying, hey, when you take communion, when you participate in this cup, when you eat the bread, are you not claiming to be a Christian when you do this? Are you not saying, I am a part of the body of Christ? I buy into the message of the gospel. Um, that, that when you do that, you are saying that that's what you believe. So those of you who've been in H20 for a while know that when we take communion, we ask that non-believers refrain from participating in communion. That's not because it's like special bread and they're stealing our magic bread. Like, we buy it at Kroger two hours before service starts. It's just bread. But we ask them not to do that because they're saying, hey, if you participate in this, You are by your actions claiming that you believe this. And if you don't believe this, you shouldn't claim that through your actions. So Paul continues and says this. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So, so Paul is saying here in response to the argument of, well, look, if I don't worship an idol, I can go to the temple. I can eat with my friends. and It's not a big deal. I know that God is God. Idols are nothing. It's just meat. What's the big deal? Paul's saying, even if that's technically true, why on earth would you do that? Don't you understand what those people are doing? They're worshiping demons. Why would you put yourself in a situation where you're flirting with something that pleases Satan rather than doing something that pleases God? I, I think the easiest example of this for us today is just in the area of sexual purity. Um, like, Dating Christians, a lot of times, are very concerned with knowledge, right? Where's the line? What's acceptable before marriage? What can we do before marriage? What's okay? And, and it's this idea of, I'm going to walk as close to the line as I can. You're giving in to the world's idolatry that says that sexual pleasure is the most important thing in life. Do you know how often the Bible condemns sexual immorality and tells us to flee from it, to run away? Why would you put yourself in that situation? Even if you can technically walk up to this line and say, haven't sinned, haven't crossed the line yet, why would you do that? Are you flirting with sin when you walk into some of these gray areas? That's the first question. Second question, will my actions tempt someone else to sin? So we, we've seen Paul kind of talk about this idea twice already. Um, if you flip back just to 1 Corinthians 9, he spends this chapter um, using himself as an example. He says, you know, I'm telling you, give up your rights for the sake of other people. And I've done that. I have certain rights as a minister of the gospel. I should be able to ask you guys to support me in my ministry you know, for me to make a living off of your gifts and generosity because I'm doing God's work. But I haven't done that because I didn't want anything to stand in the way of the message of the gospel. I was afraid that if I did that, that you might not hear the message of Christ. And so I sacrifice that right for your sake. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul is saying that his sacrifices that he makes for the sake of other people are both proactive and reactive. So he proactively goes into a situation and says, I want these people to know Jesus. That's my primary concern. So I'm going to become like them. I'm going to give up my preferences and the things that I want in some of my freedoms to engage them with the message of the gospel. And we already saw he also does it reactively, right? If, if I am not walking in love towards my brother, if my brother is grieved by my actions, if I'm causing someone to sin, then I'm going to give that action up. I'd rather never eat meat again. I'd rather sacrifice my personal freedom to, to have this person um, not engage in sin. 
Now, at, at this point, you may be feeling like, man, this just feels really overly restrictive. <laughs> it's like, uh, you can't do something if it's maybe sinful or if it might ruin your witness. And you also can't do it if somebody's upset with you for it, even if they're wrong. And it's just like God is just shaving off pieces of your freedom slowly. Um, but here's the thing. True freedom comes from complete surrender to Jesus. So uh, it's not a good sermon unless I quote C.S. Lewis. So we're going we're gonna to do that now. So this is from Mere Christianity. Great book. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do that. There's a chapter titled, Is Christianity Easy or Hard? He says this, The ordinary idea which we all have before we become Christians is this. We take as the starting point our ordinary self with its various desires and interests. We then admit that something else, call it morality or decent behavior, or the good of society, has claims on this self, claims with which interfere with its own desires. What we mean by being good is giving in to those claims. So some of the things the ordinary self wanted to do turn out to be what we call wrong. Well, we must give them up. Other things turn out to be what we call right. Well, we, we shall have to do them. But we are hoping all the time that when all the demands have been met, the poor natural self will still have some chance and some time to get on with its own life and do what it likes. In fact, we are very like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them all right, but he does, so, he, he does hope that there will be enough left over for him to live on because we are still taking our natural self as the starting point. The Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment the natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over your whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own shall become yours. So, so we get overly concerned with restrictions to our freedom because we're taking our natural self as the starting point, right? We have desires. We have things that we want, and we want to protect that. So we'll, we'll give God when he asks for this and when he asks for this, but we're still holding on that at the end of the day, we get to do what we want. But the better way is to push all the chips into the table. Say, God, there is no piece of my freedom that you cannot ask for. I give it all to you. You have everything. And the irony is that true freedom comes then. Because then when God asks for something, it's not a restriction. <laughs> You've already given it all. You're free to do what he tells you. Third question is this. Does this action violate my conscience? So flipping back to Romans 14... In verse 20, he concludes things like this. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for, from, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul again is saying it's, it's very important that you be fully convinced 
of the convictions that God has given you. If you have any reason to doubt that you're wading into this gray area and doing something that God doesn't want you to do, then you shouldn't do it. Now, this is not an invitation to arrogance, okay? So I'm fully convinced that I'm right. Okay, well, maybe you have a few screws loose, but... Um, if conviction is better than legalism, then we need to give a preference to the speaking of the Holy Spirit in our life and maybe look to that first instead of just the letter of the law. Now, to be perfectly clear, again, we are talking about gray areas where the Bible doesn't have specific commands. I'm not saying that you should follow your convictions when they contradict with Scripture. If you're like, well, I don't have any convictions about sleeping with my girlfriend. Okay, the Bible would say that that is probably a good sign that you're not saved if you're not convicted of the sin that you're committing. That's not a good thing. But in areas where Scripture hasn't clearly spoken, where it's a bit more confusing, it's important to listen to the Holy Spirit. What is he saying to you? What does God want you to do? Legalism prioritizes the rules over love. It prioritizes, here's the checklist, as long as you do that, you're fine. Where instead we can say, man, God, I, I want to love you. I want to do what you want me to do. Um, so if you're thinking, again, that like Paul just seems like a huge killjoy in all this, that he's just restricting everything, I want to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 10 again, starting in verse 23. He concludes things here like this. Um, by the way, he's, he's switching now. He's not talking about going to idols' temples anymore. He's talking about the meat that is sold in the market. So it's a slightly different topic. It says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. So Paul is speaking to the overly cautious Christians, the one who are like, well, if idols are so bad, I, I don't even know if I want to like go out there in the meat market and buy anything and eat that, because I, I just I don't want to get anywhere near anything that could be potentially sinful. But Paul is saying not to err on the side of caution, not to always restrict freedom. He's saying err on the side of love. He's saying, hey, if your unbelieving neighbor invites you to dinner, go to dinner. It's just me. You're not in the temple. You're not worshiping an idol just because it was at one point sacrificed to them, whatever. If you receive it with thankfulness, if you're doing it for God's sake, then it's blessed. Now, if someone raises a concern and says, hey, uh, this was sacrificed to an idol, I don't know if we should do this, well, then go, okay, that's fine. I'll, 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 for your sake, the sake of your conscience, I'll refrain from that. So he's saying, do the most loving thing. Love unbelievers well. Love other believers well. 
It's not all about following the rules to a T and, and hitting every beat. It's about demonstrating God's love and promoting unity in the church. So, again, this just like makes things even more confusing. I'm sure some of your heads are spinning at this because I'm clearing nothing up whatsoever. Um, but man, like praise God that there's grace for when you mess up, right? One of the, the things, discussions we had in H2O City was on the topic of alcohol. Uh, and there was a person in our group who shared a story and said, I went out uh, with a coworker. Um, uh, I was invited to, to go out for drinks, and so we went out, we split a bottle of wine, and I was very excited about that. This person was an unbeliever. I got the chance to uh, engage with them and have a conversation and learn more about them and develop a friendship. Uh, but then when we got up to leave, I realized, oh man, like I had a little bit more than I thought I did. I'm, I'm a little bit tipsy. Maybe I've crossed the line here. And so we had this discussion about, well, was that sinful? You know, because the right intentions were there. It wasn't done on purpose. This person didn't go out drinking to get drunk. And yet they still did something that the Bible says is, is, is not supposed to be done. That's sinful. So did they cross a line? Is it okay? Because, you know, it was done with the right intentions. Like, what do we say? We talked about it for like 15 minutes. And at the end, we just concluded, I don't know. Like, <laughs> how, how are you supposed to figure that one out? But, but here's the thing. Praise God, there's grace. Praise God that your standing before him is not determined by your ability to keep the rules. So what do you do in that situation? You go, man, thank you, God, that if I sin, that, that Christ's blood covers that, and I'm forgiven, and I still have a relationship with you. And if I did something wrong, help me to learn from it and do better next time. And, and thank you, God, that there was a part of my heart that loved my neighbor, that loved my coworker and wanted to spend time with them. Encourage that in my heart. Stir that up. Help me to do better next time. Last question you can ask yourself is, am I walking in love? Um, so we've touched a lot on this, but I just want to read to close out from Galatians 6. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he knows something, or anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So Paul is again just wading into the complexity of Christian life. He's saying, hey, if somebody else falls, you, you help them up, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. But watch out for yourself. Don't fall into the temptation that's there. But then he's also saying there's no room for judgment there, right? You know, you don't look at somebody else who struggles more than you and say, oh, I'm, I'm better than them, you know, because I, I don't have those issues. No, no, no. You're judged by your own standard. Your faith is in between you and God. So don't judge yourself by somebody else's standard. Be judged by the, the standard God has set for you. You have to bear your own load. So he says there's, there's no room for judgment because we're all on the same team. We're, we're here for unity and peace and mutual upbringing. There's no competitiveness. There's no, you got this wrong and I got this right and, and you're such a dummy because we're all working towards the same goal. So uh, the one time that Paul does promote competition in, in Romans 12, he says he commands them to outdo one another in showing honor. 
So he's like, yeah, it is a competition, but you're supposed to outdo one another by showing honor. But you, no, you, you're better. Your, your needs are more important than mine. I'm going to sacrifice of myself for your sake. Now let me do the dishes. Let me take care of this. Man, what, what would our church like look like if that was the attitude? Like if, if we were not concerned with legalistic rule-keeping and ironing out every single theological issue and arguing with each other over technicalities, what if we said, my primary goal is loving God and loving other people. And I'm going to do the things that promote unity and peace and upbuilding in this church. And I think that'd be so transformative. Pray with me. Um, dear Heavenly Father, God, I just, uh, I thank you for, for difficulty in life and for struggles and challenges and, and areas where we have to, to seek you, God, because it, it pulls us away from, from legalism, God. It pulls us away from um, just looking at the page in front of us and forces us to connect in a relationship with you. Um, we thank you for your mercy, God, when we struggle and we don't understand and, and we do things improperly. But God, help us to seek truth and love and peace in our community um, and connection with you, God. Uh, enable us to do that every step along the way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.